Hello and welcome to episode two of 680 News, 30 Years in the Rearview Mirror. I'm Scott Metcalf, former news director at 680. This episode covers the years from 1998 to 2002. The news director at the time was Stephanie Smythe, and you'll hear more from her a little later on. There were a number of things that happened at 680 News during those years, including the radio station winning an international Edward R. Murrow Award for coverage of the U.S. election in the year 2000. That was the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, and the world was left hanging along with what were called at the time hanging chads on some of the ballots. We'll have more on the hanging chads later. But there was another story during those years that was much more profound. It changed the course of world history. This just into 680 News. We now take you live via CNN to New York City, where it appears we have major problems with the World Trade Center. It was the morning of September 11, 2001. Marlene Oliver, co-anchor of the 680 News Morning Show, was the first to tell listeners that something had happened at the World Trade Center in New York City. By sheer coincidence, there was a television crew from Rogers Cable TV at 680 News at that moment. They were doing a story about just another day in a big city radio newsroom. Of course, it turned out to be anything but just another day for anybody. The video from Rogers Cable clearly showed the concern and anxiety on the faces of the people in the 680 newsroom. But they had a job to do. They had to tell listeners what was going on and try to answer the most important question that everybody was asking at that moment. Is my world safe? As you heard, Marlene Oliver was the first to tell listeners about the terrorist attacks. She talks about her memories of being in the 680 newsroom at that moment. We had several televisions that were inside the master control room. And one would have been on um, CNN. One was on probably CTV in Toronto. Another one might have been on ABC or something to that effect or the weather. And and we saw on CNN that there was breaking news that a, quote, plane had gone into the first tower of the World Trade Center. But we didn't know what kind of plane. So I came on with uh, this just in at 8.48. So two minutes later that there had been a plane that went into the Trade Center. But again, we, we saw pictures, we saw smoke, but we didn't know what we were really looking at. And then while we were watching the second big full-size passenger jet, went into the other tower. And it was so unbelievable. And we didn't know, of course, what was going to happen after that. Um, It was obviously the most terrible day for thousands and thousands, if not, frankly, towards the end of it, millions of people. As the morning unfolded and there were more planes and more terrorist acts and the Pentagon on fire. And and then in Toronto, airspace shut down. There were the 7,000 people who ended up having to land as an emergency in Gander, Newfoundland, the famous Come From Away musical. So it was um, exceedingly emotional, obviously the start of, you know, what ended up being years of of coverage. Um, 
but we also took it as a, as a, as a galvanizing time, not, not just for the radio station, because we worked just crazy, crazy hours to just be on top of everything that was going on. I think that first morning of 9-11, Paul and I were on the air live for seven or eight hours straight. But it also was um, important for the, the community of Toronto to, to galvanize and to, for people to support each other and to stand together. And, and 680, I think, went a long way to, to help in that. That was Marlene Oliver, co-anchor of the 680 Morning Show, talking about being on the air when the planes hit the Twin Towers in New York City. The other co-anchor that morning was Paul Cook. He was also updating listeners about the shocking events in New York City. 680 News Time, 9 o'clock. Breaking news, eyewitnesses say a passenger jet has slammed into the side of the 110-story North Tower of the World Trade Center. You are listening to live coverage on 680 News via CNN. It is a spectacular and horrifying sight. And what appears to have been a passenger jetliner is slammed into the World Trade Center. The aircraft remains embedded in the building. Flames and black smoke are billowing from the top of the skyscraper. A large swath of the building has been blown out. We return now to CNN. One major street that runs up the west side of Manhattan. Paul Cook sat down with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc to talk about his memories of covering the terrorist attacks and how the events of that day affected the radio station and the listeners in the weeks and months to come. And I'll, I'll never forget how intense it was all those, all those weeks ahead afterwards because we knew the world was watching news every night. Like people were gathered around their television sets every night just so hungry for information. And when you're doing morning radio, you don't want to be telling people the same thing that they watched all night or heard on the drive home. So we were, we were really, you know, studying all the time. Like we were following all, we, we never really stopped. And uh, that that put that put uh, 680 on the map for sure. Our coverage. We had two reporters go straight down to New York, and they were there for a while. And we never let go of the story. And it it pushed 680 to number one in the country. We were the top top listened to radio station in the country at that point. Tell me about the morning of 9/11 and the fact that you had a camera crew there. And what was that? Why was the camera crew there? And like, just tell me how it kind of unfolded. What was your lead that day? Do you remember that? I don't, I don't even. I don't even remember the lead on nine eleven. You'd have to go back and and, and check it out. But I, I don't really remember the lead at all. I because everything that happened before that is kind of just blank now. Really, when you think about it, right? I, I remember going home that day. Or later in the week, anyway. And I, I, I'm a bit of a magazine hoarder, you know, to, to lots of news stories. And I threw everything in the garbage because nothing mattered after 9/11. It changed everything. I do remember that morning that we did have this crew in to to film us. It was an in-house Rogers crew, and they were, I guess, they were just doing industrial videos or whatever, you know, corporate corporate video. That's what it was. We had a corporate video team that happened to be there on the morning of 9/11. Obviously, no idea what was going to happen that day. And so they had these cameras rolling on us as we were doing our just in that, you know, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And we had no idea the extent of it. You couldn't even tell by scale how large the aircraft was at first. Like it, we, we, what we saw at first was the visual up on CNN of a hole in the side of a building. Right, so how how would we know what what kind of aircraft went in there? We, you know, from time to time, I think you you do have an aircraft go into a building in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Doesn't happen very often, but you know, it's not it's not crazy unusual, I don't think. And so when we saw that, obviously we went with it. And then 
suddenly we're, we're, we're watching the monitor and we think, well, wait a minute. And we actually saw the second one going live on CNN. And that's when we realized that you know, this, was, this was an attack of some sort or some, some disastrous uh, air traffic control mistake. Um, but then I think as soon as we got a sense of what it was, um, it was, it was terrifying. We, we wondered, it, it, could Toronto be under attack? Right. You start to think about those things and suddenly we dispatch reporters everywhere to union station, to the CN tower, to the financial sector, to make sure everything was safe here. And then when we realized that and then the, and then the Pentagon attack happened after that, I believe. And, the, and then the one, the plane was down in Pennsylvania. So we didn't know when this was going to end. Obviously, we had somebody going to the airport as well. It was it was terrifying. I just remember kind of being frightened for my my children at the time, wondering whether they were safe. Like, what is it like to be behind the microphone when history happens? When you see these kind of things, because obviously you've been behind the mic for 38 years and what is it like when you see the world changing and you're the one telling the story what does that feel like it feels like a really heavy responsibility to deliver that kind of news and i remember saying to myself whatever you do do not scare the listener and it's tough because you're kind of scared yourself so you really you really have to focus you really have to try and slow down and you really want to make sure that all you are doing is stating facts that you're not speculating. And in this era of hot takes, (laughs) uh, it's not necessarily fashionable, but I, I think it is what has helped maintain the integrity of 680. And I think through all this fake news nonsense that a lot of us have been accused of. We've been able to stay the course because we've always been that kind of organization. It's, it's, it's just the facts. That was Paul Cook, co-anchor of the 680 Morning Show on 9-11 in conversation with news director Amber LeBlanc. The 680 News Director at the time of the 9-11 attacks in 2001 was Stephanie Smythe. I asked her about how the 680 News team covered the story and also about the lasting effect that the events had on listeners and the radio station. 9-11 changed everything. So we went from talking about Julia Roberts and Tommy Lee and Pamela's video to 9-11. The world absolutely changed. And so did our viewpoint of of news, right? Of the news agenda and what we were going to be talking about. It was all in a whole new context. That day was unbelievable for everybody. It just so happened there was a Rogers crew that was in the newsroom at that time uh, shooting a day in the life of 680 News, basically. And they captured it all as it was unfolding from, you know, Paul and Marlene in the booth when the first plane hit the tower and, you know, just going, what, what is going on and trying to make sense of it. And it was, you know, We've seen it, obviously, since, and it's just fascinating to see how how we all reacted. But it really did, it sort of changed everything and corrected things in a way, right? So then we started again from this whole new perspective of news and context. And it was obviously a lot more serious going forward. And, you know, things evolve over time, but it it was a dark time, for sure. 
And one of the things that impressed me was how quickly it was decided to uh, send Kevin Meister and Carl Hansky to New York. There was all this turmoil and chaos and, and fear, mm-hmm. and and yet those two reporters were assigned, and they, they couldn't get a flight, obviously, so they drove down there. So tell us about how that planning went. I think it was something like, pack your underwear and get moving. <laughs> it was just no question. We, we couldn't not be there. It's, and we didn't know how or what or, you know, exactly what was going to unfold when they got there, but it didn't matter. They just had to get on the road and, and they were amazing, right? Just, just getting on the move and, and getting there and getting that perspective that we had to have. So it, it never really was a question of if it's just how and get moving, <laughs> you know, and, and we'll figure it out as we go. And thankfully, they were two absolute pros. And the ongoing coverage, obviously, the tensions were extremely high for everybody, stress. Um, And uh, talking to John Hinnon, he said that was a real turning point for 680 News, and you must have felt that as well. Absolutely. You learn about the responsibility of what you're doing, and it's like I said, that context is is brand new. And, you know, you look at things through a whole different viewpoint, like things were very serious. Like we were wondering so much, like, are we on the brink of a world war? What's going to happen next? How, how, and it just, it was just this tension that would not ease for a good long time. And, you know, it was a coming of age for 680 news. That is for sure. And, sort of set the standard for what we did, you know, after that time. And I think it contributed to what it is today, right? That just understanding the context of the seriousness that we'd never, none of us had ever lived through before. That was Stephanie Smythe, who was the news director at 680 during the 9-11 coverage. John Hinnon was also in the 680 newsroom when the first plane struck the World Trade Center. There were a lot of decisions that had to be made in the heat of the moment, And as vice president of news at 680, John was front and center when it came to making those decisions. We talked about the chaos of that moment and his other memories of 9-11. We were sitting in um, the news director's office. It was Stephanie Smythe was the news director at the time. And we were doing our morning lineup. And we're sitting around with some of our reporters and just uh, chatting. And uh, somebody, we had a big wall of glass, as you might recall. And all of a sudden, somebody walked in and said, something has just hit. The one of the towers, the World Trade Center towers, in New York. So it was like we're looking at it. So now, of course, everybody's on their feet trying to see what's going on. We've got uh, televisions going and trying to figure out what's happening. And uh, at this point, we knew we had to to uh, figure out how we're going to get some reporters down there because this this looked like it was going to be a pretty big story. And I'm on the phone with our travel agency trying to make flight arrangements for a couple of our reporters, Carl Hansky and Kevin Meiser. And we see a plane flying in. I thought it was a replay. That was the second plane hitting. And on all of a sudden, aircraft, the whole thing is shut down in terms of uh, uh, what's happening in terms of the airspace. All, everything is shut down. So we're on, I'm now on the phone with Carl and Kevin and saying, you know what? Looks like we can't get you there by plane. You'll have to drive. So they got their stuff together pretty quickly and drove 11 hours and got to New Jersey And they were able to see across uh, the river to see uh, what was going on a little bit. And um, it was a crazy day. Uh, I remember that morning, you know, we're in the newsroom. And uh, funnily, we had a a, a TV crew there that morning. 
the only time I can ever recall ever having a TV crew from Rogers Cable, they're in there filming. And there's video online, I'm sure, somewhere that somebody could find of this this morning. And uh, you can see the uh, the shock and awe on people's faces as the two towers came trum- come crumbling down. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And then, of course, for days after, uh, you know, thank heavens we had a relationship with CNN. And uh, we were able to stick with them live as much as we could because they were on the scene. We had a couple of reporters who would who would try and do the best they can, but you can't cover everything that's going on in that kind of a story. And uh, so we were really lucky that uh, that uh, we were able to to be there. And we were basically we knocked at all commercials. Of course, there was no commercials for days on end, and um, uh, it became. I remember when when. The rate, and we didn't do it for ratings. We did it because obviously it was a huge story, but the ratings were crazy for that. And they were probably the biggest until we got to where we were back, you know, once we got to the late 2000s, 2010 or something like that. Um, but it it, uh, it just took over the airwaves. And, well, you, you know, it just it became the biggest story ever for 680. It put us on the map in terms of uh, where people would go for information. And one of the things that, that having been the news director there, and, and I, not at the time, I wasn't there at the time, Stephanie Smythe was, but just sort of imagining the, the planning and the thinking and the decision-making that had to be made, the decision to send Kevin and Carl by car right away was obviously key because uh, if you had waited, they probably would have had a little trouble getting across the border. Actually, I think you can ask Carl, but I'm pretty sure I think they actually did have some trouble getting across, even as it was. Um, but, uh, you know, they're good reporters, entrepreneur reporters, and uh, enterprising reporters, and they figured out how to get there. And, um, you know, I think they actually slept in their cars the first couple of nights too, because I mean, like, what are you going to do, right? It's uh, you know, but Carl and Kevin can can certainly f- let you know what's what's going on with that. But uh, we were so lucky that they, they jumped in as quickly as they did, and were there for us as quickly as they were. That's John Hinnon, who was the vice president of news at 680 during the 9/11 coverage. On the morning of 9-11, 680 reporters Carl Hansky and Kevin Meisner were asked to drive to New York City immediately because all the flights had been canceled. You'll hear from Kevin and Carl in a moment. But first, a caution that some of the details of their stories about being at Ground Zero can be difficult to hear. But their stories are also about the heroism and resilience that was displayed by so many. First off, you'll be hearing from Carl Hansky. Carl is a truly outstanding reporter, especially when it comes to covering breaking news. His ability to get to a scene, quickly assess the situation, and then instantly go live on the air is second to none. And he says his experience in New York covering 9-11 taught him a lot about being able to maintain his composure in the middle of chaos. Here now is Carl Hansky talking with news director Amber LeBlanc about his memories of going to New York City and being at ground zero. Can you think back to that morning and what was your story you were on in that that morning? Do you remember? I don't remember. I remember it was Tuesday morning and I had to come back to the newsroom a little earlier because we had a meeting and I don't remember what the meeting was for. So I had to record and go to tape, as we call early, so and then get back to the newsroom. And when I got to the newsroom, it was just after the first plane had struck the tower and um, news director Stephanie Smythe at the time was standing there looking at the TV. And so I came up and I'm standing beside her and we're, you know, we're watching the coverage 
And then the second plane hit. And the entire newsroom gasped. And then Steffi, we looked, and she looked down at me, and she said, get to the airport. And I ran, because back then, this was before um, smartphones, before email, anything. We had cell phones. It was a Nokia, I remember. And it had the you know detachable batteries, like the batteries would run out. You have to detach the battery and then put another battery on. And the batteries weighed quite a bit. I ran around, and I gathered up like four or five batteries, as many as I could. And I ran to my car and I went, I drove home. And as I was at home packing, they shut down the airport. So then I'm like, okay, now I have to drive down to uh, Ground Zero, down to Mount Lower Manhattan. So I got in the vehicle and, and drove. And uh, I remember getting to the border and the, um, there were soldiers at the, the border crossings and everything, rifles out. And there was uh, like serious, like there was no fooling around. There wasn't a smile. It was very very, very tense. I remember they were checking all the vehicles, everything. And then got across through that. And soon after I got across the border, they actually shut the borders down. Yeah, it was a crazy day. My God. And you were with Kevin Meisner? Yes. Kevin Meisner, both of us went up. So one was driving, one was doing reports and getting tape and then doing all that as we were going along live every half hour. The news never stops. And so we were getting updates as kind of what was going on. And then we'd have clips of people, you know, obviously the shock and, and all that, that of, of that day and the fright, the fear and all that swirled into what was going on. And then we got down there. And I remember when we got down, they had shut down um, Manhattan, obviously. So we got down there that night. It was late too. I think it was really, I think it was on 11 o'clock at night or something. And um, I had to go live, but then it hit you like you're, it's one thing to see it on TV, but then when you're actually down across the Hudson, we had parked right across the side of the river and look, and you just see this gaping hole in the Manhattan skyline and this huge pillar of smoke and ash and everything rising up. And it was, it was wow. It really hit, really hit home and all that was going on there. Um, and then we had to go live. And it was my first moment of I was overwhelmed. And I had to go on the air. I remember I've got like 30 seconds to go on the air. What am I, what are you going to do? But you start panicking a little bit. I had no, no, there's so much going on. There's just so much chaos and confusion and mass destruction and all this going on. I'm like, how am I going to, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What do I, and then the voice in my head just said, just breathe and describe what you see. Wow. wow. And so that's what I did. And did that every report after. That's all you can do when you're in something like that. You just take a breath and just say, worst thing is you just describe what you're looking at and just tell people what you're seeing. And so I did, and that's kind of how I got through it. And that was a lesson for me because now whenever you start feeling overwhelmed, I'm just like, take a breath and just tell people what you see. But it was really, yeah, it was um, like incredibly in, uh, intense. Now that first night... um. Kevin was telling me you didn't even have a room. You had to sleep in your car. Yeah, I did an all-nighter and then was on the air, right, and the next morning. So we just, <laughs> we just, you tried to sleep in the backseat, but really there's no sleep to be had. It, there's just too much. It was just too much going on. And, and you got to remember, too, that this was before email when this happened. So the only way that we could get updates was to listen to the radio or read the newspapers and or watch the television coverage as well. So... We were trying to, you know, listen in and gather as much as we could because I had to go on the air and you want to give, you know, the best information that you can of what's going on. And, and because we weren't physically at ground zero, we had to hear or read or whatever else that was going on there. 
So we tried to get information that way so we could relay it along to our audience back home here in, in the Toronto area. Um, so there was no sleep. There was no sleep. And we, yeah, we there, was, there was no Twitter. There was no instant updates. Nothing. Nothing. It was old school. You, got, you watched the television coverage, you listened to the radio, or you got the newspaper in the morning. That's the only three ways. And how did you, because cell service was really spotty, so how did you even communicate with the newsroom? How did you go on the air? Oh, my God. That was, so we would use the cell phone and, and a tape recorder and hold the, the cell phone speaker up to the tape recorder speaker, and then you'd, you'd get you know clips across that way and you talk. But as you know, everything was, everything was lost. And when the towers were hit, when the towers collapsed, they, it was the, the cell towers, it was everything. So the signals was very sporadic. And most times it would work for like my first few hits in the morning and then it would be gone. And so there was one payphone that was working in lower Manhattan and it was about five blocks west and three blocks north to get there from from ground zero so when i finally got down to ground zero <laughs> to do my hits i go around i get tape i do some clips i grab some people that were there and i'd you know get a visual of what i was wanted to talk about then i had to run physically <laughs> those blocks to get and use the payphone do my hit and there was if there were people on the phone i'd have to bribe them here i have to go on the air can i give you 10 bucks can i let me just do this and you can have it right after me and do that that's physically what I had to do for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. It just, it's hard to imagine now, obviously, because we have so much technology that, that it was so primitive at that time. Yeah, it knocked everything out. It knocked everything out. And I remember it took me about, because they had everything, you know, Manhattan sealed off and they, they had to set up the, the lines for workers to, to, and the equipment to go in and out and all that stuff. So there was only one way in and out of Manhattan at that, you know, at this point. They're getting set up. So no one was allowed down in that area for for days. And I managed to get across, I think it was on the second day that we were there. And I remember, and they had guards and you know soldiers guarding the, all the streets get leading down there. But there was a couple of side streets I, you could go down. And I remember going down this one side street. And it hit me right away because Manhattan is a city that never sleeps. There's action. There's stuff happening there all the time. There's noise, people, everything going on 24 hours a day. But right then there was nothing it was silent nothing darkness and silence and you're walking down these alleys and plus there was so much smoke still swirling there's ash everywhere it was like christmas you're walking down the street and you're knee deep in this grayish white you know stuff and it wasn't snow it was ash and it was everything and it was covered the stuck to the trees stuck to the side of the buildings as, as i say it was like knee deep as you're as you're kind of going down the street but it would swirl out of your way as you made your way down the streets it was eerie but it was like a really dark horrible christmas-like scene with everything stuck to the buildings like that and i got down it was so quiet and all that was lit up was this the, the spotlights that they were using down at ground zero for the the crews to light up you know the area so they could work so you'd be that you just follow to the light to get down there and the first day that i got right down to the pile i didn't even know it was so smoky and ashy you couldn't see like four feet in front of you and that's not an exaggeration i mean you could not see anything it was so bad that i followed my way right up to the lights and i remember i had to go on the air it was like two minutes 558 or something in the morning so i had to go on the air at six and all of a sudden the wind direction changed and it sucked up 
all the smoke and the ash. And all of a sudden, I was standing like 45 feet from the pile. And I looked up. I'm like, oh, my God. And then I heard, hey! I looked, and I'd walked right through the line of soldiers that were protecting. They didn't see me coming. I had managed to walk right through the protective line. And they were like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm sorry. I'm a reporter. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I didn't know. I was just following my way here. And then so I had to move back. But I was standing like literally 40 feet away from the pile for like a brief moment when the wind direction changed. And it was unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Um, when you think back of all the people you interviewed, and obviously this could be emotional because you, know, you, you really talk to people at their worst moments. Are there any stories that kind of stick with you? Well, yeah, there was, I mean, the workers who were so, so brave and so determined and so exhausted, these guys working on this pile, you know, because they're co, you know, the firemen and all that, their, their people were in there and they worked hours and hours and they were so tired when they come off after like 18, 20 hour shifts, they would literally just lean up against the wall and fall asleep in their boots with their stuff on. It was unbelievable. They covered in ash and soot and everything else. It was, they were amazing. Um, I was walking down the day I got down there. And I remember there was the, the roadway where they would have the supply trucks coming in and out and, and bringing the crews in and out and everything. It was a busy road that they were moving things in and out of. And there was this woman walking on the sidewalk and she looked lost. She looked dazed, kind of confused. And all I heard saying was the red tie, the red tie, the red tie. And as I got closer to her, she was almost going to step out on the roadway with all these trucks that had been going by. And so I, I just grabbed her. I said, are you okay? She said the red tie, and I didn't know what she was talking about. And then chatting for a couple seconds later, what it was that she was in one of the the, um, the buildings next to the the, the towers, and um, a man had fallen past her window, and he had a red tie on his suit, and it was fluttering as he went past her window. And that's what she was saying, the red tie, the red tie. And then she went on her way and I've always wondered what happened to her or how she was because I can't imagine. And then another sad one, um, horrible one, was um, along the route where they would bring the supply and the workers would come in and out, the people who, family members of those who were missing at that time because missing before you assumed um, dead, they were lined up along the roadway and they would hold up pictures or posters with, with photos of they're missing loved ones. So maybe the workers going by would would maybe see or recognize. They would see, have you seen this, you know, so-and-so, and they would have a picture of them. And I was chatting with one gentleman whose wife was in the towers, and he was pretty much knew that she was gone. Um, and I was talking to him, and then a little tug at my shirt, and it was their daughter. And she looked up at me, and she said, Daddy says that mommy's with the angels now. And that was the first time I cried. I had to turn away. I thanked them and I had to turn away and I had to cry. Because when you're down there, you can't, you can't let emotions, otherwise you won't be able to do your jobs. You have to put all of it bay and just do your job. Um, but I, I couldn't hold it back then. I, I had a big cry then. And so what, you know, when you, when you left... Yeah, how did you feel as you were leaving and coming back to Toronto? Well, it wasn't until I got across the border. So you 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 do your job and you hold it in, and then I've got to you know I've got to get home, and it's a long drive from 
you know, New York to Toronto. And it wasn't until I got across the border that you kind of felt safe, for lack of a better word. But then I let go a little bit and I started crying as I was driving. That's when it really you kind of the flood of everything came through because it was it was a horrible experience um, for sure. You saw a lot of things that you you, you want to forget and just the, the tales of misery and well. And so that was when I first lost it and, and that the sadness came over me and everything else, everything, everything experienced through the, that two weeks which just came over and I, I just started crying. But then I also remembered and every darkness there's always a crack of light and i think that's what i grasp for and that's what i look for and that's what i hope to convey when we talk about these stories and you have to do you know you have to look at that and say because even in this darkest hour the resilience of the people the courage of the people and also how people relied on each other there were friendships hatched from 9-11 that never would have existed you know wall street bankers and plumbers became best friends because in that time they all just had to escape and get out and they needed each other and they leaned on each other and they and they grouped together and they made their way out of there together and they remain friends to this day. And so all these people who just when times were really tough stopped and helped each other and assisted each other and cared for each other and provided care and whether it was food whether it was hugs whether it was everything whether it was physical support whether whatever it was they provided it and they Together, they came through and they came out. And I remember talking to some of them who were friends who would never would have met, but were best friends from that point on because they relied on each other. And that human goodness, that part of that, that spirit of that is what I take away. Because even, as I say, in the darkest of times, there's always a crack of light. And that crack of light is the human spirit and the goodness that we have. And that was there as well during this time. And so that's my takeaway from all of this was that to remember that in the times of great need and great stress and duress that there's goodness out there now when you came back did you take a week off like how did you decompress and then when you came back to work how how do you think 680 changed the, the listeners changed with 680 after 9-11 and that information that we provided yeah when i got back i needed a few days off because you didn't sleep i for the i'm and this won't be an exaggeration i think for the I think we were there like 13 days and I think I slept a total of maybe 21 hours. And that was because physical exhaustion, you just fall asleep for an hour. But you got to remember again, there was just so much going on. It was so overwhelming. And there was so much information and the only way you could get it was reading newspapers and watching television, listening to the radio. And so when you'd finish, you know, you'd work your, you know, 16 hours and then you'd go, you'd come back and we'd make our way back. And our hotel room was in New Jersey. We had to, the closest we get was New Jersey. So we had to get our way out of Manhattan, get on the subway, get back to New Jersey. But you'd read all the newspapers. You'd watch the television programs and you'd do the radio. You lived it. And you just were so much information. And you were just so unable to sleep, to close your eyes. And so I needed some a time of that. But then when I went back to work, um, yeah, it was... You know, everybody was seeking information, and because we're an up to the you know up to the second live, here we go live up to the second. What's going on? It was you know our station. It was a big listening boom for our station because we were able to you know go live to CNN and have information going all the time in that. So it was we became a big source for that. And um, for me personally, it changed me in that there's never a story that will rattle me again because there's nothing that would compared to that again so 
every time, as I say, I'm just now, I'm like, there's nothing that rattles me on air anymore. I'm able to handle pretty much anything because it was so frenetic, so much, so intense and so much trying to cover off that there's nothing that now will, you know, that phases me if I have to go on the air again. So I'm able to keep calm in the most, you know, in extreme circumstances and just get through it and, and make my way through because of the experience of, of those horrible two weeks. Is there anything else you want to add about 9-11? I mean, there's so much with 9-11, right? Like, there's just so much. So the morning that I was making my way down to Ground Zero for the first time, right? And so there's, you make you can't see in front of you. Like, there's ash and smoke and everything just swirling all around you. You're, you're, there's, you're kicking up ash as you go. It was up to my knees as I'm making my way down there. And I'm making my way towards Ground Zero. And then I look down, and then the ash kind of swirls away at my feet. And that there lying on the street and right in front of me is a, a little pamphlet, a tour guide for New York. And on the front of that pamphlet is a picture of the two towers of the World Trade Center. I picked it up. I still have that today. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, wow. Well, yeah, it was, it was a, a moment. And I, so as I say, I put it in my backpack and I still have it today. That was 680 reporter Carl Hansky speaking with news director Amber LeBlanc about being in New York City and covering the aftermath of 9-11. The other reporter who went to New York City for 9-11 was Kevin Meisner. Kevin is one of those talented people who's able to do all kinds of different jobs at 680. He had been an anchor and an editor and a reporter. He was outstanding at all those jobs, but when it came time to choose one, he decided on being a reporter. Here now is Kevin Meisner in conversation with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc. So you became a reporter, one of the best reporters that 680 has ever had, full stop. Can you think about back to the moment of the morning of 9-11? What was your scheduled shift that day and how did the day start for you? Well, first of all, that's a very kind comment. But uh, yeah, you know, it was it was a normal day. I remember waking up thinking, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day. The sun was shining. It was uh, unseasonably mild for September 11th. And uh, I was just getting ready for, for work, kind of just puttering around the house and, and getting things together. And um, I think my wife, who was working at another radio station in Kitchener at the time, she... Um, she called and said, do you see what's happening on TV? And I said, oh, let me, I turned on the radio first in the kitchen and, and I heard 680 News reporting that a plane had hit one of the buildings, the World Trade Center. And I thought, wow, what, that's pretty incredible. Um, the next thing I knew is uh, I actually jumped in the car and was just going to come downtown to start my shift thinking this is not going to affect me beyond maybe getting some local reaction to it, what have you. And the editor on shift, the midday editor called me en route and said, um, listen, we're going to be sending you and, and your colleague Carl Hansky to New York for, for coverage for what's happening there. And uh, so I need you to, he literally said, I need you to go back home. Where are you now? Well, I'm halfway. Well, turn around, go home, pack a bag and, uh, and drive to the airport. They were going to fly us down to New York. And even that was a, a little chaotic. As we know, uh, it was a fluid situation. Um, we knew two planes had hit the World Trade Centers. Buildings hadn't collapsed yet. Things were still happening. It was a chaos. We didn't know if the borders were going to be closed. Ultimately, planes were grounded. And I do, I do know that uh, by the time I got um, headed to Pearson Airport, I, again, was redirected by that editor saying, 
Don't worry about it. Just go meet Carl at his place. You guys will pile into the 680 News Cruiser at the time, uh, and you'll drive to New York. So we did. And it was, uh, Carl did the drive. Carl had already finished a morning shift. I was fresh, but Carl drove while I, we stopped along the way and just kind of did some interviews and got reaction from Americans that we could find. We, even at the border, I got into some trouble right at the border um, in so much as we're in the lineup for the border crossing. And I jumped out of the car and just kind of went up to other cars and said, so are you American? Yes, I am. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Buffalonian. I'm, I'm from wherever. Um, and I'm trying to get back home because we've heard what's happened. And so border security wasn't impressed with that. They asked me to jump back in my car. But, um, but we, yeah, I got some great interviews just about it, just the chaos and the, the uncertainty and people wanting to get home. They'd been in Canada. They wanted to get home to be with their families at a very uncertain time. So yeah, it was, uh, and, and and of course, I keep reminding myself that that time affected everybody. It didn't matter who you are. And when we jumped in the car, got across the border, um, and of course, the border security is looking at us saying, why are you trying to come into America at this time? And we said, we're reporters. We showed our documentation. We got searched on the way and then ultimately made our way down as far as, um, uh, I guess it was Jersey City, New Jersey, but we could, they'd close the bridges and the tunnels to Manhattan Island, so we couldn't get over. But there were so many people who had gotten out of Manhattan and were now sheltering in New Jersey. In fact, um, the first night, uh, Carl and I didn't have a place to stay because we could not find a, a motel room anywhere. Uh, so we had, we had uh, conceded the fact that we're just going to sleep in the car, which we did. And we went to, uh, we were actually directed by a police officer. Well, if you're looking for a place to stay, go to this high school on this street. There's an emergency shelter there. And we went there and Carl and I did not, did not think that we should be taking up cots that other people should be using who had been evacuated from Manhattan. But when we went there, we found all kinds of people who had been at ground zero. Um, I, I remember talking to this, um, I don't remember her full name, but her first name was Kathy. She was a school teacher from Florida. She was in New York for a trades conference, a, a teacher's conference. They were in the Marriott Hotel at the base of the uh, World Trade Center. And uh, they managed to evacuate, but she just told a horrific scene about uh, how um, she says, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about what has happened over there and how I got out. And when she was, when she was running from the hotel, she said she stepped over, um, you know, discarded shoes and purses and suitcases and, and jackets, things that people had dropped or potentially had come from the, the buildings. One of the buildings had collapsed at that time. It was just, it was um, incredibly moving. It's a story that had to be told, but it was, it was really impactful to get those, those very personal uh, reflections of, of a, such a huge story. Did it feel like sometimes when you cover these stories, like it doesn't feel real? Like, did it feel real at the time, the magnitude of what happened? Did you grasp it or you were just kind of like in the moment, just trying to like, oh, I got to file my next story? Yeah, that's, I, and I, I, looking back, I think that was my coping mechanism. I realized this was big. I didn't know whether this had an international scale because even at that time we weren't sure, is, is this an, an act of terror? Is this an act of war? What is this? Um I didn't really let myself have to worry about that too much. It was, yeah, working, working to get an interview, working to gather facts, working toward 
um, getting closer to the story because ultimately it took us a couple of days to get down there. And then from there, it was a cat and mouse game of trying to get closer to ground zero so that we could, you know, gather information. Um, I remember just thinking, get an interview, get some stories, and then get something on the air and then just work for the for the next half hour. And if anything, that was somewhat comforting because it gave you a, your your main purpose is this. Get the story out to your listeners and then you can focus on on everything afterwards. I remember, yeah, some of the um, some of the initial stories. I mean, we I, I talked to um, a woman who lived in the Tribeca neighborhood. I want to say I could be wrong. Um, please don't correct me on my geography. <laughs> but but I mean, she it was something as simple as I ran into her in the days afterwards, and and she said, "Oh yes." Um, I said, "Oh, so do you do you live here?" And she says, "Yes, my son." His school, um, the the window of his classroom overlooked um, the World Trade Center, and he said that the the children saw one of the planes hit the building, and they had to evacuate. And she said that uh, um, her name was Geraldine, and I believe her son was seven or eight years old. And she said that um, that uh, he he was having trouble sleeping, and obviously was very scared and and traumatized by this, as one would be, as you know, children, adults were all traumatized by that. But all the little stories, uh, there was a um, an iron worker from Oklahoma City who jumped in his car and immediately drove in the days after 9-11 just to help with the search. And and I remember interviewing him. He, he kind of walked up from ground zero. He's covered in that white dust. And uh, he kind of took off his helmet, collapsed against the building, and just kind of sat down and... Uh, and I remember he said, you know, it was kind of a poignant comment at the moment. He said, uh, you know what? We work hard to put these buildings up. It's tough to see them come down like this, which is obviously, a, I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe a comment like that. It seems it seems kind of trite and, and obvious, but I knew what he was saying. It was it was kind of emotional at the time. But yeah, and, and firefighters coming up from ground zero, that was just incredible. I, I do remember a Lieutenant Kevin Callahan, um, his name, he said he had lost 11 members from his house, his fire hall, and he wasn't going to quit searching until he found them. And whether or not, in the end, I, I, very few people were found because of the devastation there and the fire and the collapse and everything. But, uh, but yeah, I, I remember telling people afterwards, I was struck by the, um, by a sense of, of admiration for this guy, because here's a guy his job is to protect people. He's strong. He's a hero. But I caught him in a moment of vulnerability where he's, he's you know, again, covered in that dust in his bunker gear. And as he's telling me about his lost brothers and sisters, he said, um, he was crying. Like just tears are coming from his eyes and, and he's still talking to me. It was just that, that moment of vulnerability in a, in a, in a man who, you know, saves lives for a living. It's, uh, it was incredible. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was life-changing covering that story for sure. I think it was life-changing for a lot of people, I think, um, just in general. How did you, and I want to ask you more questions about the 9-11 piece, but like how did you deal with it when you came back? Like did it did it hit you? Did you take some time? Like how how were you feeling after? How many days were you there? And then like what happened afterwards? Yeah, we were there. Carl and I were there for 11 straight days um, of reporting uh, from the, Tuesday of 9-11, right through the, the following weekend. And then I think we came home 
the following weekend. So yeah, it was it was eleven straight days. But it, yeah, you know, I, I came home with a huge admiration for New Yorkers and their their absolute strength at the time. But I, I remember um, when I came home, it was tough because um, I had the comfort of just doing my job. And and Carl and I talked on the way back, and we kind of decompressed a little bit. But we just wanted to get home, and we weren't uh, we were still kind of keeping our emotions on guard. And um, God bless six eighty news at the time. Our, our boss gave us both a week off. Said you're you know don't come back to work until you want to. Hopefully on this day, but when you feel like it. So we both took a week off, and I do remember that um, I, I felt I, I was overcome by a, an overwhelming sadness and and kind of a I don't know how to describe it, just sadness and and kind of a certain helplessness, just because I felt like. Um, I was there, I saw people suffering, but I get to go home to my family. I get to go home to my safe country at the time. I get to not have to worry about picking up the pieces. And I, I was really sad and kind of went into a bit of a state over that, I, a, a bit of a guilt. I felt guilty leaving because the job was far from finished down there. But um, but yeah, and and in the end, I, I spoke to friends and family. I remember um, actively avoiding coverage of it. Um, unless I had to do it at work, I I avoided watching TV news coverage and documentaries in the days, weeks, and months afterwards, just because it took me to a an uncomfortable place, which is maybe a selfish thing to do, but that's that's what I did, and um, yeah, and, and I I do remember. I'm not afraid to say that I, there were times where you know I found myself kind of crying myself, and th- and then kind of feeling guilty and selfish about it thinking why am i crying i didn't lose anybody i'm not searching for relatives i'm not um hans gerhardt of toronto ontario who i met at ground zero who lost his son on the 110th floor i believe of the uh, uh of world trade center one where the Cantor fitzgerald building was i mean he was he was a toronto man who went down there saying that he he wanted to find his son he knew his son was gone but i, I just have to be here he said and it was uh, I just thought, who am I? <laughs> Where do I have the right to to be sad? But but anyway, I, yeah, it was it was a process. I had to work through it. I think Carl did too. Oh my God. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, those. I think those are normal. You know, normal feeling to have. It's just like covering something that's so surreal. Would you say, out of everything that you've covered in your life, that's kind of the seminal the seminal story? Yeah, that is the biggest single event that I've ever covered. I've covered all kinds of um, uh, significant events. I mean, there have been numerous events that have shaken the city of Toronto. The van attack in recent years is is a high on that list. We had the G20 conference in Toronto, which was kind of turned the city upside down for a while. But certainly 9-11 was, was just the, it was such a big world changing event. And it, it had so many kind of ripples that went out from it. I mean, uh, just the fact that it changed the way we we travel now. It changed the way we fly. It uh, it changed the way um, uh, Canada and the U.S. approach uh, wars and intervention into other countries and that sort of thing. It's uh, it's uh, definitely the top story for sure. In terms of when you were there, and this is kind of unveiling the curtain for the listeners a little bit, but you know now if we get some clips 
we kind of press a couple of buttons and they go in, like everything's sent digitally. It's pretty seamless unless there's, you know, some sort of technical failure. But like, how did you even file the stories back then when the internet was still fledgling and and we were still using phones? Like, how did how did that even work? Oh my gosh. I love sitting down with students <laughs> who, who, you know, they're, they've come in in a digital generation, so they're so much further ahead and and I like to say, gather around, uh, kiddies, kiddies, let Uncle Kevin tell you about the old days. And I, I do feel like a dinosaur when I do. But yeah, I, we were still working with, uh, with cassette machines. We would do our interviews, a microphone into a cassette machine, and, and we would record our interviews that way. And um, as we did here at home, so what you would do is you would find a clip on that recording and you would cue it up. And then to go live, you... We did have cell phones, analog cell phones at the time, the, my Nokia, my trusty Nokia at the time. And what you would have to do is you would queue up that tape machine and then you would read your report into your phone and then you would hold the phone immediately up to the speaker and play that clip and then pull the phone back and say, yeah, blah, 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 and finish your report. And which is a, was a perfect system at the time, except near ground zero where the Verizon towers that served much of Lower Manhattan had come down with the ta- with the uh, World Trade Center, so cell service was incredibly spotty down there. So I, I can remember the odd time uh, I would call back to my editor just to give an update, and it would she would say, I, "I can't hear you, I can't hear you," and it would cut out and it would drop out. And I remember we had to line up for payphones um, to, to. There were all kinds of reporters down there, and I can remember being like fourth in line. And looking at my watch saying, okay, I'm eight minutes away from going live here. And there are already three people ahead of me waiting to use this payphone. And I remember one time I popped into a diner. It was the quintessential New York diner where the, the, the women behind the counter, and they were all women, were wearing like uniforms that reminded me of that show Alice. It was hilarious. And it was not a joke or a theme. It looked real. It, it was a... Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. I went in there and, and begged to use their phone, and uh, the woman kind of gave me side eye, and then she realized, wait a minute, you're not... I think she knew I was a, from out of the country, and I was being nice and Canadian polite, so she, I, she literally pulled this ancient phone and plunked it on the counter. It was like something out of a movie, and said, yes, make it short. And I said, it will, and so I made a long-distance phone call from there. But yeah, I made sure... Uh, from there on in, I I would do my interview and then hoof north because if I went a few blocks north, you would find payphones that weren't in use, that the reporters weren't uh, weren't kind of crowding around. But yeah, <laughs> it was pretty incredible. That is incredible, and I think one of the other things that happened from nine eleven is that um, it kind of created a moment with the listeners that when something impactful happens in the world you're going to hear it on 680 and we're mm-hmm. going to send people to those places and we're going to tell you, you know, what's going on. I mean, I think that that was, it's almost considered not to sound completely trite, but like a seminal moment for people knowing that 680 was a place where information is available to them 24-7. I've received feedback like that on the street when I've just talked to people and 
I'll say, hi, I'm, I'm Kevin from 680 News, or I'm, hi, I'm Kevin from City News 680. And they'll, I, I used to get people say, oh, I listen to you guys all the time. Yeah, I like the fact that you, uh, you break in with updates all the time. And they don't necessarily understand the nature of our format. They just know that whenever I tune in, I'm going to get the latest. And uh, that's a sense of pride for me. I, lo- I love getting feedback like that because it's, there's nothing more complimentary. It means you're serving your audience. They're, they're getting what they, they want and they need. So... And sometimes people are terribly excited if they, oh, is this going to be on the radio? Yeah, yeah, we just did an interview. I'm going to use a clip of you. When will that be? And, you know, it's it's 6.56, say, in the morning. Oh, I'm going to use a clip of you at 7. Oh, you're going to turn that around that fast. Oh, excellent, excellent. I'll listen, I'll listen. <laughs> did you eventually get a hotel? Yeah, yes, we did. Yes, we did. In Jersey City? Well, our accommodations, I can tell you about our accommodations when we finally... Yeah, the second night, we slept in the car the first night. The second night, we found a motel, um, and that's a very loose term because it was a very low-end motel. It was right at the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel, I think it was, in Jersey City, New Jersey. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget, you walked into this tiny little lobby, this vestibule, that was maybe the size of three phone booths put together, and... The, the the clerk behind the glass was behind thick bulletproof glass. It, it, it must have been like two inches thick. And there were three panes of it, two thick panes on, on left and right, and the center pane, which was offset so that there were two kind of air holes sticking in from the so that so the sound could go in. There was thick bulletproof glass. So I can only assume that this hotel had seen some negative action in the past. I do remember my our, our ritual was... Um, my colleague, Carl Hansky, the poor guy had to get up super early and he had to make his way on the path train over across to the island first thing in the morning. Uh, Carl's got to be on the air at 5.30 in the morning. So I don't know when he began his journey, but he would get up while I was still sleeping. So what I would do is um, when I got up, I'd shoot down to the lobby because they had, they'd put out some fresh fruit, God bless them. And I'd steal a banana and an apple and whatever I could grab for myself <laughs> for breakfast, but I would grab it for Carl too. So that he'd have something when he got back to the hotel because uh, I knew he was just working, not eating, and he would just come back. Um, we would, uh, um, we would find the restaurants were open on, on our side and down uh, downtown in Manhattan as well. So we'd be able to snag food from time to time. I do remember we did take, um, I think it was one Sunday morning we took off and, and, this was Carl's idea. Said Carl. Carl said, "We're in New York. Let's go find some classic New York pizza." So we did, and it was greasy and oily and delicious. And we folded it up from the sides like true New Yorkers and ate it. That was that was good. And that was the day the um, uh, the Empire State Building reopened to tourists, and so we were able to go up just kind of as tourists. I do remember um, Carl handing, or I, I think I think it was I had a camera with me because there were no camera phones at the time. I handed my camera to some other people and they snapped our picture and Carl and I just kind of unconsciously stood there and the smoke is in the background of lower Manhattan and we're not smiling. We didn't realize it until we saw the photo. I developed the photos and I thought, oh my gosh, that's, well, that's very telling. I mean, there's nothing to smile about at that moment. You're at the top of the Empire State Building overlooking a terrorist attack. So, so yeah, we, um, we got to do that. So that was... And it was our first trip to New York ever, both of us. And we'd never been there before except to go for, for this particular event. So it was, it was something else. 
I have been back um, a couple of times. Uh, I think I came back the very next year. Um, Carl's been back a number of times uh, for anniversaries. I don't know if he's gone as a tourist or not. I've never asked him, but uh, but he's gone back for 9-11 anniversaries. Um, but yeah, and I I went back the very next summer, and I remember it was already a changed place. I couldn't believe how how incredibly that city had rebounded. The scars were still there. Um, there was still a cordoned off area. They hadn't rebuilt uh, um, anything on that location yet. There, they were still talking about memorials and, and the like. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was incredible to see the hustle and bustle again and Broadway open again and uh, and all those things. It was it was fantastic. It was it was good for me too, just as part of my own personal kind of pulling it together process because I did not want to remember New York the way I saw it the one time. So it was nice to see it. In its all its vibrancy. Again. That was 680 reporter Kevin Meisner in conversation with news director Amber LeBlanc about his memories of covering the aftermath of 9 11 in New York City. The terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, caused a lot of disruption for millions of people, including all that air travel that was diverted and cancelled. There was also one of those travel side effects for 680 News. About a year before 9-11, there was the controversial U.S. election where George Bush became the president, narrowly defeating Al Gore. Because of ballot issues, it took weeks to decide the winner. 680 News won a major journalism award for coverage of that election turmoil. The title of the award-winning newscast was History on Hold. It won the International Edward R. Murrow Award as the best newscast of the year. The award is handed out by the Radio Television Digital News Association in the United States. The 680 newscast had beaten all the other entries, including those from the top American radio stations in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and any English-language radio station in the world that had submitted a newscast. It was a stunning achievement for a radio station outside of the United States. It meant that representatives of 680 were invited to attend a gala event at the award presentation at the annual convention of the RTDNA in the United States in October of 2001. But of course, that event was cancelled in the wake of the 9-11 attacks just the month before. Instead, the award was sent in the mail and was proudly displayed on the wall of the 680 newsroom for many years. One of those involved in the award-winning newscast, History on Hold, was 680 political affairs specialist John Stahl. He spoke about the election coverage with 680 reporter and anchor Mitch Burke. Two words, hanging chads. What what comes (laughs) to mind? (laughs) Because as I understand that that might have been our first international Murrow one for a newscast, and I believe it was titled... History on hold and how fitting how fitting a phrase to describe that period of American life. That, that well, that's right. That was uh, history. It was history on hold, and I, I think Paul probably came up with that that headline um, for the benefit of those who either weren't alive or don't remember it. It, it was the the victory of George Bush over Al Gore that as president. That took many months to determine, uh, you know, never mind the current Trump stuff about challenging the electronic voting uh, machines of Dominion and all of that. This was people casting votes by a, a paper ballot that required a punch 
a piece of equipment that punched holes into the selected candidates. And it was determined because it ended up being challenged in court that some of the punches, the paper punches, uh, didn't go all the way through and left dangling pieces of paper uh, still attached to the ballot, which is why they called it the hanging chat. So both sides, the Bush administration, the Bush team and the Gore team, we're challenging the vote count because do you count one that still has a piece of paper hanging to it or does it have to be completely detached from the original ballot? So that became an ongoing weekly, daily development that we watched. And I guess I, I was the one leading the, the coverage on that right up to the point where it went to court and, and George Bush was declared the president of the United States, but it was the, the hanging Chad that preoccupied us in the newsroom every day. So elections were challenged in those days as well, for sure. That was 680 political affairs specialist John Stahl talking about the award-winning newscast History on Hold about the delayed election results in the U.S. election back in the year 2000. Coming up on the next episode, we'll cover the years 2003 to 2007, including this story about a deadly precursor to COVID. Well, Britain is now telling its citizens not to travel to Toronto unless it's absolutely necessary. Britain now joining 25 nations around the world who are now advising people against trips to our city because of SARS. And we'll also have a deeper dive into two key elements of 680 News, traffic and weather. And of course, we'll talk about them together. All that and more coming up in Episode 3 of City News 680, 30 Years in the Rearview Mirror.